0: Welcome to the Wellness Journey podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I'm Dr. Mariette Danilo and I'm grateful for the opportunity to journey with you through these challenging times and to hopefully provide you with information that will help sustain you. Our podcasts are aimed at keeping you healthy in mind, body and spirit. This is podcast 15. The title of today's podcast is The Power of Resilience, Part Two. Hello again. It's so good to be back with you and discussing what's important for your well-being, especially now. If you remember our last podcast, we defined resilience and we talked about how the concept came about. But researchers have taken it far beyond just a concept and developed tools and strategies that have been found to be useful to people. We said that resilience was not entirely a trait but could be learned and practiced. That's important. It puts the ball in your court. It gives us hope. Resilience can make the difference between staying well or becoming ill. So it's important. But before I go any further, I want to clarify a few things from last time to avoid any confusion. Resilience is useful during any stressful time. And in fact, it requires stress to make us stronger, but I wanted to add something about rumination. As I said in the last podcast, too much rumination doesn't really move us ahead and can keep us from problem solving. However, when there is trauma or grief, such as over the death of a loved one, or a significant loss. Now, that may require assistance and can be experienced differently for each individual. It's very much a personal journey. We're all unique, and so also our grieving may be. In the case of trauma or abuse, flashbacks may occur. And this goes beyond rumination over worries. This experience may require that help I spoke about from a professional. I didn't want to minimize or trivialize those sorts of situations and wounds when I explained rumination. So I hope that distinction is clear. And resilience, too, is a personal journey. We can sometimes lose hope. We can lose trust. We know as Catholics that hope is a virtue to be practiced. Have you ever heard the quote, grief is the price we pay for love? It's often been credited to Queen Elizabeth who said it, but she was quoting someone else. Those are actually the words of Dr. Colin Murray Parks, a psychiatrist at St. Christopher's Hospice and a pioneer in the field of grief. If you're interested, he wrote a book called Bereavement, Studies of Grief in Adult Life. His actual quote goes like this, the pain of grief is just as much a part of life as the joy of love. It is perhaps the price we pay for love, the cost of commitment. To ignore this fact, or to pretend it is not so, is to put on emotional blinkers, which leave us unprepared for the losses that will inevitably occur in our own lives, and unprepared to help others cope with losses in theirs. Quote. And what have you lost during this pandemic? A loved one? A sense of safety? A sense of security, a job, ministry, trust, faith. Whatever your personal situation, we know that hope is always accessible. And then we talked about optimism. Optimism is not a Pollyannish view of the world. In fact, many have referred to optimism as realistic optimism. Just as hope is always anchored in reality, so is the lens of optimism. And this is possible even in our suffering. Okay, so much for tying up loose ends. We talked about positive emotions, the P being the first letter of the acronym PERMA. Dr. Martin Seligman's model of resilience these are the component parts of what dr seligman of the university of pennsylvania of what he believes comprise resilience if you remember we said that p was for positive emotions and we talked about that last time e is for engagement r stands for relationships m is for meaning does my life have meaning And finally, the A is for accomplishments. So next up is engagement. And stay with me during this. It may get a little wordy, but I want you to understand how important engagement is. That it's not just doing something. We need to find activities that require our full attention. This allows us to learn and grow and to be challenged, to be stretched. Remember we said way back when that if you're not experiencing a little anxiety, you're probably not growing? Well, it's true. So, and again, everyone is different and finds enjoyment in different things. It may be sports, it may be music, dance, or I can't even believe this, even math. This leads us to the concept of flow. And flow is a state of intense engagement, focus, and contentment in the present moment and current activity. It's like what athletes call being in the zone. We are so engrossed that the world goes away during these activities. Time seems to stop. The point is, we all need something in our lives that absorbs us into the present moment. When I give presentations, I usually show a picture of a violinist to illustrate this. But many activities can trigger flow. Flow states are known to enhance creativity and performance and spark innovation. These experiences are considered profound enough to improve one's overall satisfaction in life and even happiness. Although flow experiences, have been observed for thousands of years. Uh, Mihai Shikshank Sheheli, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mihai uh, coined the term in 1975. So so Mihai uh Mihali uh, is spelled, his last name is spelled with a C, S-I-K-S-Z-E-N-T. M-I-H-A-L-Y-I. Lest I pronounce it so poorly that you can't spell it. And if you'd like to learn more about him, you can certainly do so. I would urge you to do so. He was a researcher, uh, interviewing artists about their tendency to get so absorbed in their work that they lost awareness of anything else, including basic needs for food, water, and sleep. The term flow came from the way they describe this experience as like being carried along in a current of water. In his 2004 TED Talk, and we've posted this for you on our website, Mihai explained this as a function of cognitive processing limits. The intense concentration on the activity at hand prevents the capacity for other processing, such as rumination or worry. The most important part of a flow experience is that this intense experience leaves no room for multitasking, daydreaming, worrying, or attention to any other matters. So you can see how this might be useful. The individual would be working at the limits of his capabilities, anticipating next steps as he goes along. And the activity is intrinsically enjoyable. And there's a sense of effortlessness. And we've seen this in ice skaters and athletes in general. We've seen this in in performances uh, where that person seems to be um, not worried about anything going on around him. And there's a sense of effortlessness. So the ability to experience flow varies from one individual to the next. But this has been studied and applied to inform many areas, such as personal growth, workplace psychology, music, sports, education, and believe it or not, game design and gaming. Although some of these applications are not so good, such as game design and gaming, in my opinion, the concept is a part of resilience, and that is good. Mihai says, and I quote, The best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur if a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Mihai discovered that people find genuine satisfaction during a state of flood. During this, quote unquote, optimal experience, they feel strong, alert, in effortless control unselfconscious and at the peak of their abilities. He claims that happiness does not simply happen. It must be prepared for and cultivated by each person by setting challenges that are neither too demanding nor too simple for one's abilities. Mihai is one of the pioneers of the scientific study of happiness. He was born in Hungary in 1934 And like many of his contemporaries, he was touched by the Second World War in ways that deeply affected his life and later work. During his childhood, he was put in a prison. It was here, amid the misery and loss of family and friends during the war, that he had his first inkling of his seminal work in the area of flow and optimal experience. In in an interview, he noted, I discovered chess was a miraculous way of entering into a different world where all those things didn't matter. For hours, I'd just focus within a reality that had clear rules and goals. End of quote. So let's talk a little bit about happiness. In his main thesis, uh, Mihai, in his most uh, popular book called *Flow: The Psychology of Optimal Experience*, Mihai says that happiness is not a fixed state, but it can be de- developed. So we can be responsible for developing our happiness, for creating it by doing, by practicing uh, in this area. So we can develop this as we learn to achieve flow in our lives. The key aspect of flow is control. And in the flow like state, we exercise control over the contents of our consciousness rather than allowing ourselves to be passively determined by external forces. This is important. He writes, and I quote The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Optimal experience is thus something we make happen." End of quote. He points to ways in which humans have attempted in vain to find happiness, through assigning power to things outside of their control. You may have had similar experiences in your own activity choice, such as working on a difficult project or even to a certain degree in simpler exercises like reading. These are moments in which your mind becomes entirely absorbed in the activity that you forget yourself and begin to act effortlessly with a heightened sense of awareness of the here and now. Mihai identifies a number of different elements involved in this achieving flow. So in order to achieve flow, these are the elements that need to be in place. First, There are clear goals every step of the way. There is immediate feedback to one's actions. There is a balance between challenges and skills. Action and awareness are merged. Distractions are excluded from consciousness. There is no worry of failure. You're participating in the activity for just for the merit of the activity itself. So there's no worry of failure. Self-consciousness disappears. The sense of time becomes distorted and the activity becomes an end in itself, as I just said. As these qualities indicate, the flow-like state is not primarily characterized by subjective feelings, uh, even if they're positive ones, Rather, the essence of flow is the removal of the interference of the thinking mind. When a quarterback is in the zone and about to pass the football, he's not consciously thinking, how can I throw the ball? I'm going to put my arm back all the way and my, my fingers are around it. He's not. If he, if he thought like that, he would interrupt that flow-like state and likely fail at the attempt to pass the ball. Absorption in a task indicates the absence of the self and emerging of awareness into the activity you're engaged in. While Mihai's uh, research focuses on the area of work and creative output, he sees that the state of flow is applicable to relationships and situations, even times of adversity And these can transform into a challenge rather than a setback. Now, this is important. And he concludes that there are people who have developed their flow to such an extent that they are able to translate every potential threat into an enjoyable challenge and thereby maintain an inner tranquility. He calls such a person an autotelic self. Someone who is never bored, seldom anxious, involved with what goes on, and in and out of flow most of the time. Now, you might think that this is for the exceptional few, like someone like the Dalai Lama. But Mihaly gives examples of ordinary people who are able to find delight in ordinary daily tasks. Mihai points to five ways through which one is capable to cultivate oneself into an autotelic person. First, setting goals that have clear and immediate feedback, becoming immersed in the particular activity, paying attention to what is happening in the moment, learning to enjoy immediate experience, proportioning one's skill to the challenge at hand. So these criteria indicate that flow is created by activities with a specific set of properties. They're challenging, they require skill, they have clear and immediate feedback, and have well-defined measures of success or failure. Flow, then, is a constant balancing act between anxiety where the difficulty is too high for the person's skill and boredom where the difficulty is too low. Mihai points out that flow can be achieved by many activities that don't require elaborate commitments. One can achieve such a state while skiing, fishing, playing the guitar or any instrument, or even cooking. And he sees flow as producing a stronger self Do you have an activity where you can experience flow? If not, I would urge you to find something. It will truly enhance your well being and resilience. You can find a link to Sikhschenk Mihal's 2004 TED Talk on our website. The next part of Martin Seligman's PERMA model for resilience is R for relationships. In my opinion, this is the most crucial and powerful of the protective factors that we're talking about. I encourage you to listen to my podcast on loneliness again, especially towards the end where I talk about a quality relationship and what is a quality relationship. You'll be surprised at where you stand. But we'll talk about that next time. You've been listening to the Wellness Journey Podcast from the St. John Giambiani Center. I hope today's podcast, The Power of Resilience, Part 2, proved useful to you. You can find all our podcasts and get additional information and resources for clergy and religious by visiting our website at sjbcenter.org. Remember, we are companions on the journey to stay healthy in mind, body, and spirit. We are the St. John Vianney Center, and our mission is you.